You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Good stuff. Okay, so yeah, as I said, we are right in the middle of this series on parables, which were the, this kind of set of slightly odd stories that Jesus told that we can hear kind of different versions of in some of the Gospels in the first part um, of the New Testament. So I've got the job today of talking about a, a good old classic, which is the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, you might have heard it called the parable of the lost son before. So uh, I thought it might be good for us to start by reading it together, and then um, I'll explain sort of what I'm going to do. So just to let people know as well, there are sort of a bunch of Bibles at the back, and there's no sort of pressure to you know follow it along because it will be on the screen. But I know sometimes people like doing that, and it's always helpful sometimes to see which bit I'm talking about and you know where it appears and what happened before and after. So at any point, just feel free to go and help yourselves to those. Okay, so the parable is in Luke. So we're going to read from Luke 15, 11 to 32. And as I said, the the words will be on the screen as well. So the parable of the lost son. And I'm reading from the NIV version, by the way. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
Right. So in our series as a whole, we've been looking at these two particular questions. Uh, one was how can we hear the parable through an imagined set of first century Jewish ears? Because it's important to understand that when these stories were told, they were not for us, that we weren't the intended audience. And the second question was how can we translate and apply the parable so it can still be heard speaking? So that's kind of the two questions that I'm hoping I'll answer mostly by what I'm going to cover today. And I'm going to do that by sort of splitting the parable, I guess, into seven sections. So don't panic, that sounds like we'll be here till like four o'clock, but we won't, um, because some of them obviously have sort of more or less in them. So these are the, the sort of seven sections. Who's, who's a list person like me? Come on, yep. God loves you, yep. So <laughs> I need a list, right? So you kind of know where we're going now, I think if you, if you can see these are, the, these are the sort of sections, okay? So first of all, setting the scene, I guess it's useful, isn't it, just to sort of know some wider points of context uh, before we sort of dig into the, the, the actual sort of verse by verse kind of section. So first of all, we find this story in Luke's gospel and actually only in Luke's gospel. So there are four different written accounts of Jesus' life uh, in the New Testament and uh, each of them is slightly different. And so when we talk about the gospel accounts, we're talking about those sort of four different versions, I guess, of four um, writers talking about Jesus and his life, death and resurrection. Um, so Luke's gospel. And actually, it's important to just say right from the start that the word prodigal is actually nowhere in the Bible at all. It's not a biblical word. It's not in the text. And it wasn't even really used as a title for the parable until an early church father called Jerome, if you're interested, uh, started using it. So I think we can call it the lost son because actually, as we go on, you'll understand, I think that that's actually a, a good title. And, you know, that's what that's the title the NIV uses as well. Uh, so the lost son. So Luke places this parable in a series of three. So we've got the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. And we, we don't know, actually, whether Jesus told these as a sort of set all together or whether maybe he did them at different times. We, we don't know that, but Luke presents them all together, which itself is, is important and means that perhaps he sees them as being linked. The parables in Luke are presented as, I guess, Jesus' response to the Pharisees kind of muttering about, oh, Jesus is hanging out with all these, you know, these sort of horrible people and he's welcoming sinners and eating with them. And if you were a Jew that had real significance, who you shared a table with, who you ate food with was really important. Um, so, you know, they were kind of complaining, I guess, that he was doing that. And this seems to be, um, you know, Jesus' response to that. However, it's important to sort of say, so in Matthew's gospel, we've got um, the lost sheep. And in there, it seems to be that Jesus is actually talking to his own disciples. So there's a couple of different ideas, I think, about um, who maybe these parables were, were directed at. Maybe Pharisees, maybe followers of Jesus. But I kind of like that because I think, actually, it has huge importance and relevance for both, actually. So back to Luke's gospel and our three parables about lost things. So firstly, what I think it's useful to sort of look at, you know, what, what do all these parables have in common? So firstly, they all follow a similar structure. So, uh, yeah, they all have this, this structure of loss, search, completion, and joy. So something gets lost, a sheep, a coin, a son. Um, there's, there's a search. There's some sort of process of um, this lost thing being found again. There's the completion of that search, so the, the item, the person, the sheep is found. And then there's some kind of celebration at what's lost being recovered. So they all follow that structure. And actually also they all feature people who I think have people who are perhaps quite wealthy in some way. So 100 sheep is a lot of sheep. I'm no farmer, but uh, in those times that's a sizable flock, you know, that's a decent amount of sheep. 
10 coins at that time is a couple of weeks' wages. So I guess just to have 10 coins, you know, lying around and you've accidentally lost one, it indicates perhaps this woman in the lost coin is somebody with, with money. And in the family, in the, in the lost son, they've obviously got a substantial estate. They, they've got a fatted calf to kill. They've got servants and a house, which obviously included a large banquet hall that was probably big enough to host the village. So these are people that have, which I think is just interesting. Sometimes that's not necessarily how you see it, particularly sometimes some commentaries of the, the lost coin indicates that the woman or women in those times perhaps didn't have access to wealth, and that's not always the case. And perhaps me, for me already, there's something there about loss, isn't there, and how it impacts everybody. You know, it doesn't, it's not just, um, you know, we, we all experience loss no matter what our kind of economics or circumstances are. Um, but maybe there's something there about, you know, perhaps when we have is it more difficult then to notice what might be missing? You know, when you, I mean, if I look at a, a hill of 100 sheep, I wouldn't necessarily know if one of them wandered off and there was 99. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to see? And again, if you had a pile of 10 coins, I don't know if you, if you then reduce it down, it's, it's maybe harder to notice when you have more. And yeah, that slide sort of shows that there's kind of an escalation in the loss. So first it's just one sheep out of 100, then it's one coin out of 10, then it's one son out of two. So this idea of the loss kind of building or growing throughout this series of parable, and therefore the loss is the greatest in the third parable. And this sort of, um, it follows like a folkloric sort of rule of storytelling, which we've seen lots, you know, you've got Cinderella and her stepsisters, you've got the three little pigs, um, back to the Bible, also things like the Good Samaritan, where you've kind of got these first two characters which behave in quite predictable ways, and then suddenly the third character does the thing that makes everyone go, what? They wouldn't do that. Um, so the idea is that it's building, it's this crescendo, it's like there's this, there's this, but then there's this, where this really dramatic big thing happens. So we're being kind of, prepared, built up, you know, this is the one out of the three that you really need to listen to and, and pay attention to because something amazing is going to happen. Okay, so I guess that's some sort of basic context stuff, so let's maybe dig back into the, the verses themselves. So, um, give me my share. Great. So, I'll just read out again verse 11 and 12. So, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So, he divided his property between them. It's hard to emphasize what a shocking and awful thing that was for a son to ask of his father, particularly in those times. Some commentators even say that it was as good as the son saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead now so that I've kind of got your money. Um, I think that's slightly harsh. <laughs> but, and I think other commentators also say that that's, a, that's an interpretation. There's perhaps no evidence for that in, in Jewish culture. But actually, the point is, it was an unthinkable thing for a Jewish son to do to their father. So it would have been, it would have caused great hurt. Even the request itself was sinful, was, you know, not what you should do. So before the, the request has even been granted, there's something here about um, wrong having been done already. And what's worse still is he doesn't just make the request. He actually then, when the request is granted, he sells his share of the estate. So what that would have done is that would have taken maybe a, a private family dispute suddenly into a public community thing because whoever sold the, the land or the possessions, we were not sort of, it's not clear what it was, but people would have talked, people would have known about that. And so, you know, word would have spread. Perhaps it would have brought kind of that shame um, on the family as people knew what was happening. And in Jewish law, a father could actually execute his will before his death, but actually still re retain sort of a level of control over the assets. And that means that basically nothing could actually be sold until the father had died. So the son might have gone off and sold 
parts of land or things, but until the father actually died, whoever bought it couldn't take possession of it. So it makes you sort of wonder, well, how, how did he convince people to buy it? Because, you know, it's sort of like an investment, isn't it? You know, like an awful pyramid scheme. Like, when my dad dies, you'll be able to have it if you buy it for this super low price. So he may have even had to sell it off for less than it was worth. And also then you get this idea of, oh, my goodness, this is something that doesn't just affect the son and that immediate family, this is something that is going to have an impact through generations, you know, that um, it stops inheritance to future generations. It's something that when the father dies, then suddenly everything that they have perhaps won't belong to them anymore. So it's a huge, 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 huge thing. It's not just something that affects the son and his family. It affects the whole community um, and, yeah, for generations to come. So the younger son at this point is looking pretty bad, isn't he? Um, he's already lost, I think, before he even leaves home. He doesn't understand his role as a son, the hurt he'll cause. He seems just oblivious to it. But I think we need to also look at the older son at this point. So a couple of us that have been speaking have mentioned this book called Parables by a theologian called Brad Young, a copy of which is in there, the quiet room at the back of church there. So if you'd like to take a look at that, please do. He argues that actually the silence of the older son says just as much as the words of the younger son because he doesn't do anything. He does nothing. He says nothing. And he actually accepts his share of the inheritance as well. So the text will say, you know, he divides the property between them. So the older son would have got just as much out of it, talking about possessions, as the younger son. And in Middle Eastern culture, particularly within Jewish values as well, the older son would have been expected to play the role of kind of family mediator in a situation like that. So the village, you know, everybody in the family would have expected this kind of heroic refusal from the older son. Like, I'm not doing... I'm not taking my father's money and it's dishonorable, but he does no such thing. He accepts the money and he lets it all happen and he doesn't challenge his brother that we know of. So maybe we can be a little bit more compassionate about the younger son. I don't know. And I think, again, there's probably a challenge for us there. I think it's sometimes easy to blame somebody or look at something as somebody's fault when it's, there's an obvious kind of action that's wrong. But... Often we don't ask what's our role been within that. So how have we been complicit in things? How have we not spoken up when we should have done? How have we not challenged somebody because we're afraid of the conflict? Or I don't know. Um, we can all be too silent. And I think we're seeing lots, aren't we, in our, in our society at the moment about, you know, what are we going to do to speak out about things? And it was amazing seeing um, scenes of the People's Vote March. I'm sure there's lots of views politically, but just seeing people kind of demonstrate their democratic right to protest and to have a voice, um, you know, speaking out, joining in. Um, I think there's a challenge for all of us and the small situations in our day to day, but also within wider society as well. So I think potentially we kind of see maybe that actually both, son, both sons in their own way were lost. And our title of the, of the lost son is now even more fitting as I think it leaves it open to who out of the two sons were lost. And I'd say perhaps maybe both. But what about the father? I mean, he seems to sort of just grant his son's request, doesn't he? I mean, if I went up to my dad and was like, Dad, could I have my half of your you know, the inheritance? He'd probably just tell me to go away in a not very polite way and would say no, um, as I'm sure lots of you would if your children came to you and said that. But we don't see a conversation or a resistance there. The request is, is kind of just granted. And I think sometimes you can almost look at that from a human perspective and be like, what a bad parent. Like, you've got to discipline your child and tell them, you know, the consequences. And, um, but actually, that's God 
God is lavishly generous, scandalously generous and kind, and he has given us these amazing resources with the risk that we will spend it wisely, that we will um, take care of what it is that he's given us. So perhaps even looking at this planet as an example of that, I mean, what a, a gift, what a lavishly generous thing for us to take care of and to steward. And now we are facing the possibility of our own extinction because of our lack of care of what we've been given. But God is a God who is yeah, lavishly generous and abundant in his kindness. And what do we, what are we doing with what we've been given? And, you know, it's not just about the environment. There's a challenge in that every day, isn't there? You know, what, what are the gifts we've been given? What are the resources that we have? What are we doing with what we've been given? And are we using it in the right way? So some challenges already. Okay, let's move on to the next section. So wild living. I feel like I want to say that in a really bad, so an American accent. I don't know why. I won't. I'll spare you from that. So I'll just read verses 13 to 16. So not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So we don't know much about what exactly the son did. Perhaps it's best that we spare the details, but we know that he went far away, um, which I guess in itself is a metaphor to a sort of non-Jewish land um, somewhere uh, where there were pigs, where he actually ended up um, feeding pigs, which for a Jew perhaps maybe isn't. And it gets to the strong imagery being used here for the audience. It's trying to illustrate how far the sun has gone. Um, he is far away, not just geographically. He is far from who he is, from his identity. He's far from the riches of his father's house and the provision that was once at his fingertips. He's far from the generosity of anyone else, the help of servants that he would have been used to or his family. The text said no one gave him anything, which would be a very, very stark distinction to the upbringing that he would be, and um, he was used to. Now, the older son later on says something about prostitutes, doesn't he? Which I feel like is always your, you know, your brother trying to get you into more trouble than you've actually been. And sort of maybe, yeah, he knew more about what he'd been up to than the parents. But um, yeah, we don't know. But we know the, the metaphor, I guess, is he's far away in lots of different ways. Okay, he came to himself. Next slide. So verse 17 to 19, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. The Greek phrase used here for he sort of came to his senses or came to himself was used in other places to sort of describe repentance. But there's this bigger sense of like a, a returning or a coming home. It's a bit like that light bulb moment where you suddenly go, oh, I could do that. Um, and so that's the sense that we get from the text there. But a lot of commentators point out here, is there really any sense of genuine repentance? And actually, when you look into it more, I think there probably isn't at this point. Is it more about this realization that he is in trouble and he needs help? Is he really sorry? Amy Jill Levine, who's another theologian, a Jewish professor that we've been looking at some of her stuff, she writes that he isn't repentant, he's just hungry. <laughs> he longs to fill his stomach and he knows his dad has the resources to help him. 
an important thing to point out how that, that sort of rehearsed speech that, you know, the son does, that kind of, I've sinned against heaven and against you, that's actually borrowed from somewhere. So, and again, for a Jewish audience, they would have instantly recognised that as uh, Exodus 10, 16, when Pharaoh isn't actually repentant of how he's treating the Israelites by keeping them as slaves. He just wants to basically manipulate Moses into stopping these awful plagues which have been sent sort of against the Egyptians. So, um, yeah, it's 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 kind of deliberately underneath the text getting Jews to think, oh, hang on, Pharaoh said that. So there's a hint here that there's no genuine repentance, at least not at this point. So the son, I guess, still doesn't really seem to understand what he's done or be sorry. He's just in a bit of a mess and he wants some help. Um, another theologian called David Buttrick says the son's thoughts could be summarized as, I'll go to daddy and sound religious, <laughs> which I quite like. And I think that's, that's pretty spot on. So off he goes. So the compassionate father. Next slide. So again, I'll just read from the text to remind us of this bit. So, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So we see here that the father doesn't actually search for the son. He doesn't leave home, um, but he is waiting for the son to return. Um, and it's interesting, we're singing that Reckless Love song, and I was thinking, I really like that song. And then I was like, oh, is that, does God come searching for us? I don't, I'm not sure. There's, a, there's perhaps this idea here that, um, you know, we've got this kind of free will, we've got this choice to go and sort of do what we like, and that God sometimes is expecting us to return to him. I just think it's a sort of interesting thought, isn't it? Um, how much does God sort of pursue us? And, and I've had experiences where it really feels like God is, you know, um, chased me because that sounds like he's some sort of weird stalker but um like there's been moments where I can feel kind of God's spirit sort of leading me or guiding me and you know in a in a in a good way um but it just makes me ask that question you know how much does God search for us and how much are we expected to sort of take those steps towards God and maybe there'll be something in a sec that we'll, we'll sort of cover that um and yeah we see here that he was still far off um, and he saw him while he was still far off. So there was this expectation, knowing, longing, hoping that the son would return. And while he was still far off, I think we can read into that as well as, as being far off in, again, so many ways, not just geographically, still sort of in the distance, but spiritually and emotionally, again, with this point of being, you know, there was no real repentance maybe still at that time. So the father's filled with compassion and runs towards him actually before any kind of repentance, before he knows about the rehearsed speech. He doesn't know what the son's done, um, but there's just compassion. And our compassion for others in the same way, and this is hard, and I find this hard, should not be based on their repentance. Our compassion and love for them should be unconditional in a way that God is, that God's is for, for ours. Sometimes perhaps it's not waiting for that apology that might never come. It's, it's trying to act in a way where maybe, um, you know, what would God be like? How can I be compassionate and loving even if this person doesn't even understand what they've done um, to me? And I think there's some tricky things around that. Um, but God's compassion is not conditional on, on our repentance or even on our realisation of what we've done. 
And again, there are echoes here, and this is where maybe this kind of help, this will help us about the sort of, uh, you know, how much do we go to God and how much does God come to us? So there's a, a verse in Malachi 3, 7, which says, return to me and I will return to you. And it's, I get the context, I guess, it's kind of about God speaking to his wayward people, I guess. Um, but it's, it's this sort of thing of like, I'll meet you halfway, which I think is, is really nice. And again, an, an act of compassion. And uh, while I was reading into this parable, I came across a Jewish parable from some rabbinic literature, which I think captures this really well and echoes this same scripture from Malachi. And it's just a really short parable, so I read it out. Uh, it's on the screen as well. A king had a son who had gone astray from his father on a journey of a hundred days. His friends said to him, return to your father. He said, I cannot. Then his father sent word, return as far as you can, and I will come the rest of the way to you. So God says, return to me, and I will return to you. Isn't that lovely? So God will meet us halfway. Sometimes we are too broken, too shamed, too, there's a bunch of reasons why we can just only do so much, we can only go so far, but we know that God will meet us halfway, that we just need to go do what we can, and God will, will do the rest, and, and yeah, meet us, meet us halfway. So we see the son begins this speech, and we can note here that the father doesn't even let him finish it. So if you look at the kind of rehearsed speech and the actual speech, it, he only gets about uh, one sentence in. And just as the son is about to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, the father uh, stops him and says, you know, servant, start the celebration, it's effectively reinstating him as a son, as a member of the family. Um, that's kind of the, the message of that. And maybe that's the moment, I guess, where there's true repentance. Maybe the younger son is then just so blown away by the father's reaction that it brings this moment of, you know, realization of what he's done. Um, and then perhaps the, the repentance is, is in that moment. And sometimes I think it's good to sort of understand, isn't it, that, that love and compassion can sometimes be a, a way of, um, I guess, provoking repentance. You know, when somebody is just so loving and gracious, there's, an, there's something it does to you. It makes you think about things in a new way. And I think the son, you know, was kind of expected, wasn't he, to be taken on as a servant, really. Um, but the father's like, nope, you're my son. And not only that, but we're going to throw this massive party and invite the whole village. Maybe because the village kind of needed to forgive him too. So, you know, this, this idea of um, being restored to the whole community. And that's a particular sort of Eastern way of thinking that, um, you know, it's about how you fit into the whole, the family, the community, the, the wider sort of picture. And throwing the party would have been a public way of saying, my son's back and I've accepted him to sort of encourage the community to do the same thing. Great. Okay, so the party. So last bit. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this is the point where, after being mostly silent in the story, we now hear from the older son. 
And it's important to kind of notice, I think, firstly, where the oldest son was. So no one invited him to the party. No one went to find him. No one noticed he was missing. And again, I, at that moment, I feel compassion for him. You know, why didn't somebody notice him? And perhaps, again, there's a challenge there for us. You know, what sometimes do we not notice that's right in front of us? You know, who's missing? Who might be present physically but not kind of there? Um, you know, or, or kind of who might be struggling that I guess we, we don't notice. I think there's this idea of sort of, you know, taking notice. And um, this is a quote from Amy Jill Levine. The father is convinced the younger son is lost. However, at the end of the parable, we find that the son who is in fact lost is the elder. His search ends up being for the older son, not the younger son. So, yeah, there's something for us there. You know, who's not around? Who, what are we not noticing that's perhaps in our midst? And the older son, I think, comes across as viewing the father, and this is how a lot of commentators will sort of talk about it, but viewing the father primarily as this sort of source of money. So even in his language and his behavior, he's more like a sort of employer that he can get money from uh, rather than a father to be loved. And, and this is where the, the sense of the, the older son's lost, being lost sort of comes out. Um, because he doesn't address his father using a title of honor, which would be sort of normal in that culture. He fails to acknowledge any family ties with his brother. So notice he says, this son of yours. He doesn't say, my brother. And, you know, again, the wider impact of refusing to go into the party would have caused more embarrassment and more shame. If you had, you know, all the village coming to a big party, again, the older son would have a role. He would be expected to be being hospitable, greeting guests, making sure that people had food and drink, and he doesn't even show up. So, again, this is a, a sin, I guess, to the father. This is an embarrassment to the father, and it's, um, you know, causing more conflict and struggle. But I think we can probably understand his anger. I certainly can. The younger son will now be a dependent on the older son's estate, possibly needing to be supported by him. The dividing of the property as well meant that the older son only received half, when normally in that culture the older son would receive two-thirds. So he's been a bit shortchanged, even in his um, you know, acceptance of the, the situation. So this has and will cost him too, and will continue to cost him. And the response to this is yet more compassion from the father. So the father reinstates the family language. And the word he uses when saying my son is the Greek word technon for child, which is actually the same word used in Luke 2.48 when Mary and Joseph are searching for Jesus. Um, so it's this sense of reinstating um, you're my son and using that, that child, that really intimate language. And he responds to the older sons, this son of yours, by saying, this brother of yours, as a kind of reminder that actually he isn't just my son, he's your brother, you know, you're part of this family. And the invite is open-ended. The son is wanted at the party, and the invitation is always for him to come and join in and be part of it. And that is the same for us too. So is that the end? And normally at a parable we have, and we've kind of talked to, uh, you know, previous weeks about the structure of parables. Normally there's either a response to be made or a decision to be made. And this parable is left very open-ended. There are no obvious interpretations or there's no clear action or a choice for the listener to make. We decide how the story ends and we don't know. And I think it would probably be 
a little bit wrong of me to kind of, after everything we've talked about parables and this idea of sort of turning the gem, you know, as the light refracts, everybody sees something different. And hopefully already there's been things that have just gone in your head or like, wow, I didn't know that or that's made you um, think about something in a new way. And it would be great um, maybe after the service to just chat about that because I'd love to hear, you know, people's perspectives on it. But I think maybe I'd just like to finish by perhaps just giving, I, th I think sort of three things that have like jumped out at me and then we're going to have a little bit of a modern, other sort of modern retelling of it, which I think just helps to bring back sort of the emotion of it and then hopefully lots of sort of time and space to think about what our response might be. So three sort of, you know, small thoughts from me. So I think I've maybe said it a little bit already, but for me there was a real sense of like noticing who or what is missing being aware that perhaps I find myself in the parable as somebody who, as those three parables, as somebody who has, um, you know, I'm lucky in, in what I have. Um, I'm married. I've got a great, I've got really supportive parents. I own a house. I've got a really great job. <laughs> um, you know, that I have a lot, actually. And, you know, though, okay, there's been times in my life where I haven't, but I've, I, I'm now, and for, you know, a period of time, I've been somebody that really has a lot. So, is that then something that stops me from perhaps noticing what's missing, who's missing, who might be there, but you know, not in the way that they should be. So I think there's perhaps a challenge for us there. The second thing is, I think, just God's compassion and love. And I just, I was in pieces, like, at various points, mostly because Hannah sent me this video that we're going to look at in a minute that was just like, oh. But it never gets old, does it? Like, I mean, I've been a Christian for, it makes me feel old, like, over 20 years, and the compassionate love of God. I mean, that never gets boring. It never stops its, its impact on me. And you just think, oh, like God's compassion and love is boundless, endless, limitless. It's incredible and it's open to everybody. And just, I mean, how amazing is that? And I think that is just, I would love that to be just a reminder for everyone today. You know, that is for you. That's for me. That's for the whole world. God's amazing, bless you, love and compassion. And it's for everyone. And then finally, um, I think for those on social media, you'll have heard this story already, but um, I, uh, I'm normally pretty organized with my talks, but I think I just get too into them and then it's Friday and I'm like, oh, I need to start pulling all of this together into some sort of order. And Friday things were less ordered than they perhaps should have been. So I kind of thought I'll go to a cafe and try and get some headspace. And so I sat down with my notebook and a coffee and this sort of older lady comes and sits down and starts talking to me. And I was like, oh, that's lovely, but I really need to finish my talk. Um, but she asked if I was a student which I really liked because, you know, uh, so I thought, okay, we'll have a chat. I like you. And <laughs> she asked me what I was doing. So I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing a talk at a church on Sunday and it's about a particular sort of story in the Bible. And she's like, oh, which story? And I said, oh, you know, put the parable of the prodigal son. Have you, heard, have you heard of it? Oh, yeah. And then she sort of didn't say anything for a couple of minutes. And then she just suddenly was like, that's about forgiveness, isn't it? <laughs> and I, and I kind of said, yeah, I think so in part. And I said, I think it's about lots of things. And we just got into this really, really good conversation. And I said... Um, I asked her perspective as a parent because she told me that she'd got kids that were grown up now and, and she told me that her and her husband always had this phrase, love always, and that they used to tell that to their kids like all the time, love always. And she said that when she was growing up, so she's, she's 85, and so she said when she was growing up, her mum said to her one day, if you ever get pregnant, don't bother coming home. And so that kind of love always was, I guess, a counter, a response, because she just said, I heard that, and I thought, that's awful, you know, that your parents should be the people that love always, no, no matter what. And, yeah, that helped with my talk. <laughs> so thanks, Jean. But it just made me think, I guess, about this sense of loving always, that we are called to do that, but just, um, you could put that final slide up, actually, Sam, just that 
you know, if there was one, if there were two words to sum up the whole parable, you know, it would be that. It would be love always. That that's what we're called to do. But that's what we know um, that God will do. He will love us always, no matter what, no matter what we do, um, no matter how much we screw things up or how much people screw things up for us. Um, love always. It will always be there. And nobody can destroy that, lessen it, take it away. Um, it's ours eternally. Love always. Great. So, um, who's ever read What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey? Anybody? It's quite an old one now, but it's a classic. And there's a particular story in there which I absolutely love, and I've put Sarah on the spot because she's going to come and read it out for us. Um, But I just think it's a really good way of us, firstly, having a female perspective, because I think the prodigal son is not just, you know, it's it's for women as well, it's for everybody. It's not just the prodigal son, it's the prodigal person. (laughs) Um, So I think it would be good to understand a female perspective. But I think this is just a lovely way of us perhaps reconnecting with the emotion of that story when perhaps... If, like me, it's been something that you've heard a lot, and so some of that gets a little bit lost. So I'd encourage you just to sort of make yourself comfortable, uh, make sure you're sitting well. And if you want to kind of close your eyes and sort of picture the scene, you know, do that, do whatever helps. But Sarah, would you come and read this up? out? Thank you. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when she knocks on the door, when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail about the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. She decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that the men, that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body piercing jewellery she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first solo signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal gates outside the 
metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled on top of her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in a chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without having, leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mum, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up by your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents were out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed warm by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out there. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves, every so often a billboard. A sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and, and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taps acro taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome home. 
Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the t tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. We don't all have a family like that. But we all have a God like that. And uh, we can find ourselves in a number of different ways in this story, I think. You know, we don't... Um, I think we can all be far from God, and it's easy to look at people that um, maybe behave in those kinds of ways in that sort of story and think that we're not like that. But every day we have a choice. Every day I have a choice about uh, how closely I walk with God, how I walk in uh, my identity as, as a daughter of God, and I have a challenge about yeah, um, living that out on a daily basis. And so I don't know where you are today, whether you feel far, whether you feel near, whether you just need that reminder of this abundant compassion that is limitless and yours no matter what. Um, but we're just going to play this, uh, this film, which is um, just a, a lyric sort of video of a, a song. Um, and it's just a chance to just rest in these thoughts in God's presence and just think about how we want to respond, what maybe is the thing that God's saying to us. Um, and then we'll finish together probably by some song worship again. So just, yeah, again, relax, <laughs> taking these words and being sung over you. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.